It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchain. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs, and I'm thrilled that you're tuning in again today. We are continuing in our study of the radical teachings of Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been over the past four weeks examining the very first two radical teachings, or at least the ones we were able to, to summarize here. We've been looking at turning the other cheek and loving our enemies. Okay, this is a very difficult teaching for us to process, and it's really captured for us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. So today we're going to talk about thinking differently. So we're going to wrap up this study here of loving our enemies. To help me do that here in the studio with me is Dr. Steve Ford. Dr. Ford, welcome back to Engage in Truth. Thank you, John. Always great to be here. So, you know, once again, our favorite 25 minutes of the week, uh, this (laughs) broadcast. And I think we've got some really, really great points today regarding the radical teachings of Jesus today. I'm really looking forward to getting getting moving on this. That's right. Well, I, I did title today's study, Thinking Differently, because... Well, last week we looked at what's the right response, and if you're listening for the first time, maybe you've missed the past few weeks, you can go to calvaryfountain.com, again, calvaryfountain.com, and there you'll find all of these prior broadcasts and more, and they're all there for your, uh, not only sharing with your friends and family, but sometimes we just got to listen to it over and over again, uh, because as I have done many times before, when I read God's holy word, I find that there is something new that is always revealed to me that somehow I missed every other time I read it. So this is about thinking and acting differently because the Lord Jesus is raising up ambassadors for him, individuals who will represent a better kingdom because we represent a better king. And we're calling people to mission-mindedness. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we read, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So are these the hard sayings of Jesus? Absolutely. They're going to cause our flesh to wrestle With the Holy Spirit. Yes, even as a temple of the Holy Spirit, we will find ourselves constantly in this internal conflict because our body wants to go and do something else that that really serves itself. It serves our own agendas and our own purposes and our own hierarchy of needs, if you will. When really to the contrary of that is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we become a temple of the Holy Spirit and he is pulling us to do God's holy purposes because at the end of this, He wants to see us with a crown of life upon our heads, where we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet it's all the work of God in and through us. So as a disciple for Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that what he is calling us to is impossible for the flesh, but not for an individual who has the Holy Spirit working in and through them. And so that's why we're talking about this thinking differently, not to propose the impossibility but rather to show you the possibility and what can happen today even as a work of the Holy Spirit in and through you. And Jesus really spoke to that way of thinking differently. If you mm-hmm. think about Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, 43 to 48, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, 
Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. And then what a high standard, you know, that the Jesus has set for us. But like you said, empowered by the Holy spirit, that's what really makes these things, you know, remotely even possible and attainable. And that's why Jesus expects us to, to do these sort of things. Mm. When you think that when we're confronted with situations like this, when we're offended, when we're insulted, we really can respond in two ways. We can either escalate the conflict with retaliation or we can de-escalate the conflict. We can be war maker or we can be a peacemaker. Amen. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's right. And it really, this comes down to love. That's right. Quite frankly, I mean, we're to love our enemies. And love is a, you know, it's, it's a it's this little four-letter word that we just kind of throw around for everything. That, you know, I love pizza, I love football, I love my <laughs> wife, I love my job. Love my car. I, it yeah. just, it, it, we try to use this one word to capture everything. Somehow it becomes a noun, a verb, an adjective, all these things just kind of combined into one. But it's fitting, I believe, where we have to turn to Scripture for a true definition and understanding of love. Because even with all of the world religions out there, You know, if you even were to turn to the Quran, for example, you're not going to find the same description of love there that you will scripturally. If you turn to Hinduism or Buddhism, what you will find is is actually you should be rather disappointed because of the five levels that you find even within uh, Hinduism, for example, five different levels of love. And the first two are sexual types of expressions of love. And the fifth, the highest level of their form of love is self-love. Wow. Learning to love yourself before you can love others, right? And, and so it's we hear that an awful lot, really ad nauseum, right? You, you hear all of us about how to love yourself. And really the source of true, pure, noblest love is found in the Bible. And it's an amazing description that the Lord Jesus gives us. In fact, by way of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he gives no room for abstract theoretical definitions. He gives 15 different portraits, if you will, of love. Because in our contemporary view of love, and this all applies because if I'm truly told to love my enemy, what does that mean? Because in my perspective, in a humanistic, contemporary mindset that people are saturated by today, it's this emotional feeling-oriented type of love that, well, if it doesn't suit my need, then I'm less inclined to do it because it's it's something that's an emotional thing. Is it really me being able to express my love in some way, or is it really serving me in some way? It really comes back full circle to selfishness. But if we're going to turn to the source, let's look to the Bible, because the Bible gives us an unbelievable description of love that's really found nowhere else in the world, not in any religion of man, and certainly not innate in our sin nature. It's called agape, and it's a love that's an action, right? It's not just an emotion. And anytime we see biblically where God is expressed through his love, especially we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it is a God in action. It is a God who is sending his son. It is a God who is doing. 
He doesn't just talk about this abstract idea of love. He is constantly found in action, modeling it first and perfectly to which we are then to follow suit. So I, I, I do understand here that we're going to struggle with how to express love properly because there is this battle between our sin nature and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But we have to understand in order to love as God has instructed us to love, yes, even to love our enemies, to do that requires himself. Himself through the triune nature of God, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, he enables us to be able to love as we're instructed to love. How do we know that? Well, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the very first fruit of the Spirit is love, right? So he's the one who gifts us this ability because God is love according to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Now, biblically, there are four different words that are used for love. There are ones that are probably familiar to our listener right now. Agape, phileo, eros, and storge. Agape is that unconditional love for the soul. It's the epitome of selflessness. And then you have phileo, which is a brotherly love. Eros, which is what, you know, obviously we hear most about, which is a sexual love. Storge, which is the empathy, a childlike love. Then you have ludus, which is a playful love, pragma, which is long-standing, right? Long-suffering, if you will. And philautia, oh, that's the love of self, right? That, that's the one that it's over, you know, just emphasized in every sphere. I mean, it's all over Facebook, right? I mean, it's all about loving yourself, it seems. There's a narcissist in everybody, right? So, so we really have no problem loving ourselves, like we seem to think that we have to emphasize a little bit more. But this Greek word of agape, is truly the word that's captured here, defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is this all-encompassing love. It is the standard of which all other, other loves flow out of. And of course, it is the biblical model. Yeah, I, I was just, it really resonated with me when you were speaking about self-love. It's like, you know, I don't really have a problem with that. I can love myself very, very right. easily. It's loving and looking out for the other people, you know, that I really <laughs> tend to have a problem with and tends to be more challenging. Yeah. But you're right. Agape is the purest root source of love. I, I, speaking of, of different ways to use the word love, I love how our, <laughs> you know, our Heavenly Father chose to have scripture written in Greek because it is such an expressive language mm. and there's so much depth to it. So we know the essence of agape is goodwill, benevolence, self-sacrificing, and willful delight in the object of love. Let's be reminded of what agape is. We have 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes known as the love chapter, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it starts as love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. It thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. And that was verses 4 to 7 and 13, just right. tagged on to the end there. I, I was really had the, I had the privilege this past Sunday to teach from Matthew chapter 22. And in this wonderful chapter, as the Lord is speaking to the multitudes, he's given three powerful parables there at the temple. So here he is, he's talking to the masses and to these who are his accusers because they're trying to discredit Jesus. So they tried to come at him, pitting him against Caesar. They failed. Then they tried to pit him against the Sanhedrin and and the Sadducees who ruled over the temple, if you will, and their false system that they had established under themselves, even of their religiosity. 
they fall short. So they try to challenge him on a third point, three questions that came out of those parables. And on the third one, they're trying to pit him against Moses, right? So they know that if they could take this scenario, twisting Jesus's words, making it appear that he's coming against Moses, the crowd would most likely just stone him right there on the spot because Moses was the greatest hero in Judaism. And so they, they present to him someone who's going to question him. And he's called a lawyer in Matthew chapter 22. But, but really the root there is of, of a man who was a teacher of scribes. He, he was kind of their go-to guy who would know the law better than anybody, right? So they're bringing the best of their best to challenge Jesus. Now, Mark 12 says that he was still somewhat contemplating, perceiving at how well Jesus had answered the previous questions. So he's not quite as venomous as the other guys, but he is there to test Jesus. And he asks him this question in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six: Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, again, for the average person, this would be like asking, what's your favorite Bible verse in all of the scripture, right? Out of the 31,000 verses, give us your favorite one, the one that we should build everything else upon. And we think about how difficult that would be. Now, for those who are still living under the law at this time, as I mentioned, 613 ordinances built on the Ten Commandments that the Lord gave, that means that there was a law for every single Hebrew letter in the Ten Commandments, right? So there's a lot there. There's 248 affirmative laws do this, which is interesting because they say that there were 248 bones and structural cartilage pieces, according to the Mishnah laws. So as those laws structured a man's living, do this and it will go well with you. They attributed that to the very structure of the human body. And then there were 365 negative laws. Don't do that, right? If you do this, cursing, judgment will come upon you. And so again, one for every single day of the year. So listen to what Jesus says. Absolutely no hesitation. He says in verses 37 to 38 of Matthew 22, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now, what the Lord had done there masterfully as they were trying to pit him against Moses because he wasn't speaking against Moses. He was telling them, in the law, it says, do not murder. And yet he would say, but if you've even thought about murder against your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder, right? If you've even said racha against your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. And he was driving it right to the heart condition. He said, if you, well, the law says do not commit adultery. But if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So they were trying to twist that to say he's in opposition to the law. But he says, I did not come to to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Right? So he had to give this disclaimer. But here he's masterful in what he does because he's actually citing the very powerful words that God gave to Moses, known as the Shema. The Shema prayer, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. Powerful words. In fact, that particular text is the oldest existing text that we still have today, dated to 150 BC. We have a copy of it in our lobby. Every Orthodox Jew would have recited Deuteronomy 6, 5 twice a day. So the Hebrew, ahev, is, is a verb of love. It's a person's love for the will, mind, and actions of God. The Greek, as you mentioned, Dr. Ford, the Greek is agapau, which is the verb form of the noun agape. 
And it's the noblest, purest, highest, self-sacrificing kind of love, really described as the sacrifice as God himself loves sinful man that he would send his own son. That before they even knew that they were still sinners, Christ had died for them. I mean, he set the bar perfectly. This is love. It's not an abstract concept, as you would find in the Quran, of this idea that if it only rains, that means that you're under the love of Allah. You should just know that you're loved. He doesn't actually have to tell you that he loves you. Uh, In fact, there are only two words in the Quran that even mean an idea of love, only 69 references, and yet there's over 400 references of true love in the Bible, God demonstrating first that he loves us, that we're responding to his unconditional, well, it is a conditional love because we have to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but a love without measure. Let me say it that way. Powerful. We see that love throughout the Old Testament. Amen. You know, God's love and patience with the nation of Israel, and that he is a covenant keeper. Never does God break his covenant. That's right. He keeps his end of the bargain and beyond. Amen. And we definitely see that very well illustrated. We get such a great picture of the heart of God in the Old Testament in regards to his nation, Israel. Amen. And, and of course, I love that it starts out with that, with all of your heart. Um, and, and somebody asks, well, is that the organ pumping between my chest cavity here? And to the Hebrews, no, the, the heart was really a person's character, their identity, as we see in Proverbs 4.23. Then he says, with all of your soul. It's like, well, okay, wait a minute. How does that distinguish, differentiate from the heart? And you'll see scripturally a number of places it is totally distinct. In fact, George MacDonald said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Okay, it's kind of like the car that you drive or the tent that you dwell in. Your body is temporary. You, as a soul, go on to eternal life or eternal condemnation. Uh, So you're temporarily in this type of flesh, as we see in 1 Corinthians where he describes the body that we're here temporarily in and a new body we received in the glory of the Lord. So it's the idea of being dunked your whole being into, say say you were to be picked up right now and dunked into paint and your whole body now be covered in that paint. Think of it like your soul, wholly dunked in allegiance to God. And it's also the place of decision. Okay, so they think about it like your mind, which is why in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he adds the word mind because of the Roman Gentile audience that needed some help perhaps in delineating soul from mind. And he makes sure to cover both of those. Then he says, with all your strength. And what I love about that is if your identity, your character, your mind, and your emotions are all in allegiance to God, so in love with him, that means all of your inertia is now carried forward in that total allegiance to God. And, And in fact, that Shema prayer would be encapsulated in often in these cylinders above doors or beside doors in the mezuzah. And so it's kind of like here in these United States where we have U.S. flags everywhere. We want to pledge allegiance to the flag. The mezuzah, they would have this Shema prayer, but also a prayer perhaps they wrote on one side. It was a prayer blessing, but more importantly, it was a like a pledge of allegiance to God. I belong to him. All that is in me, I belong to him. So with that proper framework, then we can finally start to understand what he tells us in John 14, 23 to 24, that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, right? That that, that there is a commandment-keeping mission that goes forth when we so love him. I I use this analogy a lot, this image here. You know, I don't wash the dishes in my house to learn to love my wife. 
I wash the dishes or whatever that work might be because I love my wife. So the works becomes a byproduct of a properly aligned love that, that I so love her, I'm willing to do these mundane chores. Some people fall in love with the chores. That's often what happens in religion, right? We, we see that going on all around us. The, the, you know, we have all our routines, especially in Western culture, religion, uh, Catholics and other types of groups all have the religiosity they get surrounded by. Sometimes we can find ourselves falling in love with the ritual and the routine rather than God. And so if he is truly the focus before us, then we can finally understand where he says, and, and the, the second is like it, that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. You know, Dr. Ford, quite frankly, if we figure, if we get this idea of how to love God with all that's in us, we wouldn't even need the second command, right? Because he loves people more than we could ever love them. He will always love my neighbor better than I could ever love my neighbor. In fact, he is love. The Bible says that God is love. And we're not talking about a love that compromises truth, but is holy truth, holy pure, holy righteous, but yet like Christ, who is willing to go to the leper, who is willing to go to the prostitute, the tax collector, not to condone their behavior, but to draw them unto truth and righteousness, that he was unafraid to go and even let these touch him, be near him, so that he could express the love of God to them, that he was and is the only way, the truth, and the life. So, Dr. Ford, as we're talking about loving our enemies, we have to understand that this begins with a proper alignment. Do I fully love God with all that's in me? I mean, do I truly trust his power? Do I seek fellowship with him? Do I love what he loves? Do I love his people? Am I grieved over sin? Do I reject the world? Do I long to be with Christ forever? Uh, these are all questions we have to ask ourselves. And, and really, the only reason why Jesus says in verses 39 to 40, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbors yourself, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He only has to say number two there is because we fall short of truly loving God with all that's in us. I find, Dr. Ford, there's a cascading effect in everything that if, if we're having trouble in our marriage, if we're having trouble with our neighbor, with our children, perhaps a, a coworker, we got to reverse engineer this and say, do I so love God with all that's in me that I can love the most unlovable person because he first loved me, willing to give his son for me? If I get that right, I guarantee everything else will fall into proper alignment. Then he wouldn't even have to tell you to go and love your neighbor because you so love him. Of course, loving your neighbor would be the right response to a person who so loves God with everything that's in their body, everything of their mind, everything of their soul. So really, it seems simple enough. Love God, love others, right? That, right. Se that seems to be the way it is. And that's why I think that Ecclesiastes 12, 13 kept it so simple for us. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Right. You, you want a magnet on your refrigerator? There it is. <laughs> Right, You live that out, everything else falls into alignment because you so love God. And I think we have to recognize that we as Christians fall short because we may claim that we love God. How are we treating our neighbor? How are we treating our spouse, all of our spheres of influence? Are we really loving them as God has demonstrated that perfect love for us? Probably not. Let's start there and watch everything fall back into proper perspective because now we have mission-mindedness again, i.e., we're thinking differently. Right. So I, I hope uh, our listeners have been encouraged. Dr. Ford, I know you've got a series for us coming up. I want to encourage all of our listeners, 
Uh, check this out because Dr. Ford over the next three weeks is not only going to be talking about some very special material from Chuck Swindoll's wonderful book, but also you've got some special guests coming in the studio. So you're going to hear from Dr. Ford a lot here over these next few weeks. I want to encourage you to listen in again. And if you'd like to listen to this broadcast, go back, share it with your friends and family alike. You can find it at calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. Services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we'd love to see you there. God bless you, my friends. Take care.